Here we go. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. All right. Thank you, Grace. And I will just uh, add to that. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So thank you all for joining us. Um, I am, uh, like I said, we are, we are in week two of the year, week two of a little series on the book of First Thessalonians, and we are in chapter four. And so that surprises me when I hear it, that we're in chapter four on the second week of something like that. And that's because the beginning of this book is a lot of kind of introductory information, and chapters four and five really get into the meat of it. I want to remind you just briefly a little bit about where this was happening and who was talking about it, because I know you weren't all here last week when John did a great job of that. So here's a map. Uh, here, this is Google from like two days ago. And so the city of Thessalonica wasn't just a place that used to exist, it still does, and it's a key port city in, in like Greece. And so this was uh, part of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, John last week said it was like the Austin uh, of today because it wasn't one of the biggest cities, but he you know, kind of missed that Austin is not a port city. John, it's right in the middle of Texas. And so I'm going to call it the Seattle of our day, all right? And so now that we got that fact straight, we can move on. So um, this is happening in that part of the world, in the Greco-Roman world, in a pretty influential city. So this city had Jewish people in it, but it also had uh, Greeks and was under the influence of Rome. And Paul had brought uh, the gospel, the good news of Christianity, that, that there was grace to be had for free, and it was life-transforming to this area. Who is Paul? We've got Rembrandt's uh, picture of Paul or his uh, image of Paul that might show up on that screen. There you go. Uh, he didn't look like that. That was painted sometime later. But he was a leader in the church 
who, uh, who would go and establish the church, and then he would write letters to these churches to encourage them. And this is the first of two letters that we know of uh, that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. So he had brought the message of faith to the city of Thessalonica. He lived with them. He knew them very well. And he spoke to concrete things they were dealing with, and he had moved away, and now he is writing letters to them to encourage them. And some of the things in there have parallels and are relevant to things that we deal with today here in Tucson, Arizona, and at Mission Church. There's big concepts in what you heard read uh, and what Vi read to you. There's, there's concepts and words uh, like sanctification. What is that? And there are themes that cause anxiety when they come up. I, I bet like anybody who's here visiting the wedding and you're like, sexual immorality? Are we really going to talk about that at a wedding? Like a, a topic like that can, can bring up a little bit of anxiety when it's talked about. Like, oh no, what, what's this going to be all about? And I would say, honestly, when you feel that anxiety come up when a topic comes up, it's probably an important topic. There's a reason that the nerves kind of come into play. Beyond those concepts, Paul is working out for them their motivation to obey God and their method for engaging with people who are outside of their faith. And for us here, we consider ourselves an outpost of the church, which means we want to be very obedient to God and we want to do a good job of engaging people outside of the faith. So that's why this is important to us. For us to be unified as a church in our faith and our lives and have a lively enough faith to work hard and represent Christ well, we need to draw from the right principles. We need to get our motives right and therefore accomplish our mission. And so in this text, I want to show us um, what God's goal for our lives is. This scripture tells us what God wants for the life of a person. And out of that, I want to show you and develop out the motive that works to get you there and the method uh, we use to show that to other people, the motive and the method. So God's goal for our lives, the motive to get us there, the method to represent it well. And uh, as part of our illustration for this, we will use marriage. And it actually fits very well. So what's God's goal for our lives? This scripture says our sanctification. What's that? He also said in here, pleasing God. What does it mean to please God? I'm going to read this, uh, this portion again just so it's fresh. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul wants to visit them. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. This is saying love for one another in the church and love for everyone in the community around you. As we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What's the coming of the Lord Jesus? So we have to come back in two weeks. We're not even hardly going to touch that this week, but two weeks, we're going to talk about it a lot. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you may do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter. 
because the Lord's an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God hasn't called us for impurity, but to holiness. And whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God's will is our sanctification. What does that mean? Sanctity. Let's just drop it down to that word. What does that mean? It's expanding on the concept of the word holiness that is also in this scripture. What does that mean? Holiness is when something or someone is set apart for God's purposes. In the Old Testament, that word was uh, used to speak about even items in the temple. You might have a dish that was holy. Why? It was only used for worship. It was set aside. It was exclusively devoted to the worship of God. The meaning is similar in a person. Jesus died for peoples not so that they could have their best life or get out of hell or judgment. That is not why Jesus died for people. No. He died so that we would be united to God. Close to God, yes, but more than that, devoted to God. Doing what matters most in this life, worshiping. Which is to express the worth of God in and through our entire lives. Now, it's easy to experience the Bible in portions like this as a rule book, as oppressive rules like don't be sexually immoral, don't be impure. And we rebel against rules. I, I have a couple memes for you that explain something you already understand. The waiter comes to your plate, right? He comes to your table and they hand you the plate and they tell you it's hot. What do you want to do? Especially men. You want to touch the plate, right? You really do. Like, here's the men one. Here's the next one. Here, one more meme for you. Yeah, plate. Waiter says, don't touch the plate. It's very hot. What does the man do? Huh? I'm very intrigued, right? Good memes, you know, right? Classic stuff. These are illustrating what happens within the human heart. It's the principle of forbidden fruit. I can't have it. I want it, right? It's a heart issue. It's an issue of autonomy and trust. You tell me I can't do something. Now I'm very intrigued. I don't trust you who tells me, and I want to make my own rules. It's a matter, it's a human problem. Here's what I'm going to do um, with marriage. I want to illustrate this in marriage. And by the way, the scripture is kind of about marriage. The word that we read in here um, that, that talks about when you see body, um, that each one of you may know how to control his own body, that, that word is vessel in Greek, which probably meant the male reproductive organ, okay? It did. Why didn't the translators put that in there? Well, they wanted you to buy this Bible. They wanted, they, they, they're concerned. It, that's, they're trying to be discreet, but that's the word. It really is. And, and then when it talks about not violating your brother, probably not wrong, transgressing and wronging your brother, um, that's another vague section where some translators will even say your brother's wife, but this, this translation of the Bible didn't feel comfortable putting wife because it didn't express that, but it's something that belongs to your brother. Um, why, can't the, why can't the translators decide what to do with this? There, there's some taboo language, 
but they, they are struggling to communicate that this is about actually some really discreet relational matters. Something wrong, sexually immoral, is the issue going on behind this text. Um, and sexual, sexual immorality in the Bible is this big umbrella term for anything that misrepresents the metaphor of marriage. The metaphor of marriage. The metaphor of marriage, what, what is that? Marriage is intended by God to teach covenant-keeping love, especially to teach us human beings about the covenant-keeping love of God. That's why God's design is for deep physical intimacy to match with emotional intimacy under an oath. This is why singleness is a very valid thing to do because marriage is just a shadow of an ultimate reality. You can be single and experience the ultimate reality. You don't need marriage. Marriage is a shadow of something greater than itself. Why does God care about intimacy coupled with an oath? It's because he cares deeply about belonging. Marriage is teaching us about God's own character. God is eternally a community, eternally a family. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Spirit. Eternally, God has belonged. And we are created by God to belong with God. God promises us things, and he keeps his promises. He forgives us of things. He's patient, and he perseveres with us. God is gracious, and he gives love to us even when we do not deserve it. He's patient with people and forgiving when we sin against him. So what does that have to do with rules? Look, I don't know anyone who likes to be promised something and then have the promise broken, right? Or to have trust violated. Um, to, to not belong somewhere where they felt like they should have belonged. Nobody wants that. Do you? Do you like to have the rug pulled out from under you and you thought you could trust? If we were even to speak on the surface level of the most agreed upon definition of marriage in our culture, it would be a legally bonded promise to whatever that is agreed upon, right? Um, be it fidelity, sharing of resources, or loving action toward one another, you'd make some form of commitment to each other and bond it legally. Um, and then those things become rules within that covenant. They become signs of belonging, and the relationship is damaged and potentially broken when the rules are broken, when trust is violated, when you move from being in a belonging situation to being hurt or cast out or rejected. But we don't frame these things as rules when people get married, right? And we shouldn't. You don't sign up for rules. You don't get married so that you can enter into a contract you're committing to love, to a love relationship. Not, it's not a teacher joining themselves to their student. It's not an employer and an employee. It's love. What is our relationship with God supposed to be characterized by? Love. By Paul using terms in here like holiness and sanctification, it actually becomes clear that he wants devotion 
love. He wants to know that the people who he gave his life for are, are his, that they love him. People who become Christians choose to receive God's love and to belong to God. Therefore, the, the relationship of the Christian back to God is simp simply reciprocal. We love, the Bible says, because he loved us first. So God's goal for us is our sanctification, which is a progressive word that means to grow in holiness, to be more set apart, and being set apart is to be devoted, which is to love. We are to love God increasingly. That's God's goal for us. God's goal for you is that you would love him more and more every day. It feels less and less like a set of rules the more you know the love of God and learn to love him in return as a loving marriage or friendship isn't based on rules. It's based on love. If you feel the weight of the rules, you want to press in to his love. So God's goal for us is our sanctification, which is that we would be transformed by knowing his love more and more into people who love him back and therefore love one another. The motive now. I'm describing the motive, of course, which is love. But I want to sit in it for just a little bit longer because this can be new to some of us. Some of us didn't grow up with this in the church. Some of us have never heard this before. Let's sit in this motive, this new motive of love. In faith, the order of things is massively important just as it is in a romantic relationship. You don't found a marriage or a friendship on rules, right? You don't. You don't become friends with somebody and say, hey, um, I have a set of rules. If you keep them, I'll be your friend. Nor do you get married to someone and stand up in front of them and say, hey, if you do these 17 things, then I will be your wife. Right? No, you don't. You say, I love you. I promise I'll love you tomorrow. If you found these things on, on rules, it's miserable. It'd be miserable every time. And this is a shadow of a deep spiritual reality. God who created our hearts knows how they work best and how our hearts should be oriented to him. This is why the Bible consistently frames faith as beginning with grace. And then our lives as being lived out of a worship to a God who is worth so much to us because we know how much he loves us. To be a Christian, to act Christian, is to receive grace and have your heart transformed so that you please God because you love him more. It's always been this way. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, okay? You'd say, you say to me, Andy, there's a rule in the garden. There's a tree in the rule. I've read that before. Yeah, you're right. But that's not where the story started. Remember what the kids said? Where did it start? God created everything and everyone. What is that? That's grace. Did we earn that? Did we keep rules to get our breath and our life and the creation? We did not. We didn't keep one rule. It was given to us. Absolutely free. The breaking of the covenant was a relational problem. When Adam and Eve, who'd been given everything, didn't trust the one who'd give them, given them everything. And then God gave them more grace. 
He sacrificed an innocent life to cover over their shame. He replaced their fig leaves with a pelt. Now, believe me, they understood that an animal had to die in their place. It wasn't just a leather coat. They understood an innocent life had to, had to be taken to cover over me. That's grace, and it's costly. What about the Old Testament? Laws of Moses, um, you know, the Ten Commandments, the big tablets. When did God's people receive those? It's clear as day in the Bible. It's after grace. It's after God delivered them with powerful works out of Egypt, and they saw his great salvation, and then he calls them to a mountain to worship him, and then he delivers them his laws. It's not before. He doesn't give them laws and say, hey, if you keep the laws, I'll become your savior. He saves them, and then he says, here's laws that show you how to love me back. The same is true and even more relationally rich in the New Testament, because for Christians, the God of creation and the Exodus entered into history in person, Jesus the Son, and lived the way we failed to live. He didn't touch anything God said not to touch. And then Jesus is wrongly accused and accepts his own mistrial. Why would he do that? He was choosing to bear the vengeance that covenant breakers deserve, and he offers us his grace. Forgiveness at a real cost, the cost of his life. Because forgiveness in a love relationship is not cheap. Someone always bears the cost of true forgiveness, and Jesus bore the cost for us. And he offers it freely, freely to those who don't deserve it. That's why our, our mural in the hallway, David, who painted it, is here. He's amazing. Um, that's why it goes like this. Broken people given grace, then serving others. The order is really important. Given grace first, and then we serve out of that knowledge, out of that love that we have received. The order is of utmost importance. When you reverse it, it is not of God. Keeping the rules to get love is actually making God our debtor. It's asserting oneself as God. It's control of God. It's manipulation. Such religion does not lead to holiness, but to alienation. It does not lead towards sanctification, but discouragement. It can sound right, but it cuts off the life source of faith, which is love, and therefore it kills love for one another. Now, sadly, pay attention. A lot of what calls itself Christianity has this exactly reversed, and it is not Christianity. As marriages ruled by abuse are not love. This text is framed to people who receive the grace of Jesus and they're called to love one another. So what about the vengeance in here? Those of, those of you who are dialed in with me here are going, but there's vengeance. That seems out of place. You're saying it's all about love. What about vengeance? What, what's that about? Well, we have to consider this is about relationship. The flip side of deep and true love is passion. When it says God is the avenger, it's a warning to someone who has been driven by lust to sleep with his brother's wife or child. Remember I told you the language here is, is kind of vague and they don't know how to translate it? That's because we don't know, was it rape? Was it abuse? Was it seduction? We aren't sure. But somebody, your brother, has been violated by either there's been a rape, abuse, or seduction of his wife or child. And look, some of us have been actively unloved or abused in childhood, marriage, dating, friendship, professionally or politically, and who will stand for us? 
Vengeance is not the opposite of love. It is a sign of love. It's a father protecting a child. It's a husband jealous for the love of his wife, a wife jealous for the love of her husband. Read the Old Testament prophets, and God is portrayed as a husband who's been betrayed, and he is angry, and he loves at the same time. Does God have vengeance? Absolutely. Ask any victim in our society, and they will demand a God of vengeance. But it's because he loves, and it's doled out with far more wisdom and patience than we could ever exercise. The problem is, what do we do when we don't love God and others as we should? Or worse, when we violated the covenant ourselves and deserve vengeance ourselves. As with Adam and Eve, if any of those concepts apply to you, and by the way, they do, God offers more grace. Christ took the vengeance of God upon himself. And it was not cheap. Paul, the same one who wrote this, said, Christ died for sinners, and then he said, and I am the chief. And that's to say, it was expensive to pay off my debt. That's the one who writes to us, who wrote the majority of the New Testament. And it isn't a license to keep on sinning. Paul elsewhere said, should we keep on sinning so that there'll be more and more grace? By no means. How could we? It's actually worse to betray one who loves you than to disobey a taskmaster who merely posts the rules. Which is why if you want to motivate the human heart, love is the most powerful motivator, but it's also the most telling. Because those who violate love have a dark heart indeed. The question is, will I be transformed by grace and move toward love or keep trying to manipulate God and make him my debtor? Again, this principle rings true in all relationships. One of the things I try to teach people who are getting married is marriage is a ministry, not manipulation, and it works best that way. When you minister to one another, you say, how can I help you get to, to your potential? How can I help you see God and be the best version of yourself? Manipulation says, how can I get you to do what I want you to do? You can wash the dishes for both reasons, right? You can wash the dishes to get somebody to, to be happy with you so you can get your way, or you can wash the dishes to care for somebody and to encourage them. The same action can have a different motivation of the heart, and that motivation changes everything. If you want to help someone change, minister to them. That's what Christ has done for us. Finally, Paul teaches us some more about the method. He says here, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, which means he's really encouraged by these people, and I am very encouraged with you. He says, indeed, that's what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. What Do what? Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands as we instructed you so you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Brotherly love. Philea Delphia. In Greek, Philadelphia. Okay? I have a memory tool for you. Okay. First of all, I got a quiz 
If, you, if you've uh, been going to this church for the last month, I gave you another memory tool, carne asada. What are you supposed to remember about the incarnation from carne asada? Claire. In the flesh. Yeah. <laughs> memory tools. I'm learning. I'm, I'm going to use these more and more. Um, so yeah, incarnation means in the flesh. If you can't remember that, remember carne asada, meat, flesh. It's a weird connection, but it works. Um, I have another one. This brings together so many themes. Look at this. Brotherly love is on his jersey, Philadelphia. We've got a guy that Sam knows in the background. How cool is that? Shake, shake. We've got Lori Markinen who went to the University of Arizona. Look at this. It's all, this is like the perfect photo for us. It's all, it's all there. What's going on? What am I trying to teach you with this? Um, brotherly love is not trash, trash talk, but it is making your free throws, Okay. Can you remember that? Brotherly love is not trash talk, but it is making your free throws. Here's what happened. Joel Embiid goes up to Laurie Markinen at the end of the game, and he says to him, hey, bro, my son's got to go to bed, and my wife's going to be real mad if I ain't there. I need you to miss these free throws. And Laurie Markinen bricked both free throws, and, <laughs> and Philadelphia won. Okay? Sorry, Joel, that was not brotherly love. Okay? That was not encouraging. That was manipulating, right? But, Lori, you got to make your free throws. you got to do the basics, okay? Are you getting, are you getting this? Are you going to remember anything? Brotherly love is not trash talk, but it is making your free throws. Our words need to be backed up by a body of work. Um, and this cannot mean when he talks about, um, when, when he talks about the quiet life, Paul, this is Paul. He can't mean don't talk. Because Paul is he's, he's an instructor, he's a preacher, he's writing us all these letters. There are a lot of things that he says. It can't mean don't talk. But there has to be an emphasis, he's saying, in your life on the faithful, quiet, living out of the basics. It's very important. Now, with free throws, here's something I know. Corbin taught me this. Corbin, who, who has moved away to his new, you know, saving the world destination in North Carolina, a good friend of ours, um, he taught me this, that it's not enough to practice your free throws. Did you know that? You, if They've done studies. If you think about free throws, you get better. If you just think about it. If you practice, you get a little better. If you think about it, you get a little better. If you do both, you get a lot better. If you think about shooting free throws and you practice, you get better. There's something to faith that is very similar we have to take the principles of the gospel. We have to take these ideals that you receive love and grace and it transforms you, and we have to try it. We have to offer other people love and grace and try it. And then we need to think about it. We need to practice in our own minds, like what would it look like to apply the Christ pattern to this situation? What about to this one? And as we think about it, and as we begin to work it out and try it, we will get better at it, okay? Um, now, part of why Paul was needing to say this to these people was because they were starting to disengage from the regular work of their lives. Why were they doing this? Well, we learn as we read the rest of the letter that they were starting to think that Jesus was coming back soon, and that had a negative impact on their lives. They stopped doing the basics. They disengaged. They stopped doing the regular faithfulness. They stopped living their regular life out of the overflow of grace, and they started to just get ready to leave. Now, 
we should learn something from this. Number one, that was 2,000 years ago. I heard somebody thinking that way this week. 2,000 years ago, imagine if they'd stopped living their regular lives for that reason. Wouldn't have been good, right? Probably still true today. And second, our witness is bolstered by our faithfulism, our faithfulness, not by alarmism. No matter the timeline, we are to be at peace and practicing the basics, whether Jesus comes back tomorrow or in a thousand years. That's what I mean by make your free throws. Brotherly love isn't trash talk. It's not a big fuss about what's next. It's practicing the basics of life so your life is effective and honorable. What that could mean is so many things. Go to work. Pay your bills. Try to save enough to be generous. Help people out. Apply grace in the everyday situations of life. I've shared about uh, Jonathan Charks, who was a sports commentator who died, and his friends made podcasts about him and his faith. And the things that they noticed, when you listen to a guy whose friends knew he was a Christian who had just died, the way that they reflected on him is they talked about the things they caught him doing that he wasn't doing to be seen. The ways that he served, the ways that he cared, just doing the basics. Now, there's an illustration I share with couples, um, and I think it applies for all of life. This is about how I draw it for people. Josh and Julie have seen this before. Um, as of many of you have done premarital with me. This is the cliff illustration. I borrow this from Larry Crabb. So this is, the cliff is any relationship. This is the, this is the, the stuff in life and the jagged uh, rocks or flames or whatever you want to call them um, are the things we're afraid of. And look, we're all afraid of different things. Um, for some of us, it could be rejection. For some of us, it could be that, that I'm going to be found out or whatever. And so when you have to move some, towards someone in a relationship, this doesn't feel like the big stuff of life. It feels like the very mundane, the basics, the free throws of life. But when you have to move towards somebody in a relationship and you start to feel the fear of rejection, what you want to do is protect yourself and stay away from the edge of the cliff so you don't move toward that person. You stop loving them, right? But the call of Jesus is to love that person, and often that chasm stands there and we stop loving because we're afraid. And the, the stakes that are driven down into the top of the cliff represent the beliefs we have in the goodness of God and the gospel, and the stake gets deeper and deeper with practice. And that stake becomes the love of God, and we become tethered to it. The more we practice, the more we, we do reading the Bible and prayer, absolutely, but even more, applying the good news to situations in life in, in practice and hypothetically, thinking about it and acting it out drives that stake deeper and deeper and deeper. And so then the risky moment comes up and this person, you know, the one that I love might see that I don't know what in the world I'm talking about and might shame me and that is the thing I'm the most afraid of and I've got to move toward them, but I've got this tether. I've got this tether to God. Now, that other person is, a, is imperfect. They're a sinner, right? And so there's a real risk. Maybe you move toward them, and sure enough, they do point out you don't know what you're talking about. It could happen, and you might fall right off the edge of that cliff, and the, and the rope has to catch you. There's two pieces of good news. 
Number one, the rope catches you and you don't die. You have the love of God. You're not entirely dependent on this other person, which you're not, and you cannot be. You cannot be entirely dependent on another person. The other thing is, when are you most aware of that rope? When it's loose or when it catches you, right? When it catches you. We actually know the love of God the most in the moment when somebody else fails us. This is true. This is so true in life. Um, The deeper these principles of the gospel go, then on the hardest day, we actually have the greatest chance of knowing the love of God. And we'll be able and willing to move toward people and take the risk of rejection and pain from an imperfect person because of the love of God and how it tethers us. This is hopeful living, the hope that comes from having received grace. It's important to get the order right. You have to have the stake driven in first. We must know the love of God. It's applied by practice. The rules come into play. The rules of the Bible come into play because they show us how to love God and love one another. It's part of the practice that drives the stake down deeply when it's motivated by grace. And these things lead us to love well and become a powerful display of the love of God to a watching world. Which is why central to Christian worship is service. That's why this can rightly be called a worship service. We are served by Jesus, which empowers us to serve and to love one another, which is why the culmination of Christian worship is always to come to the table where Jesus, as on the night he was betrayed, said, this is my body broken for you. Every time that you eat of this, feed on and remember me. And he takes the wine that's at the table and says, this is the cup of forgiveness, the forgiveness of many. It's poured out for all of you. Every time you drink this, remember me. What are we remembering? We remember his love, and then we are changed, and we leave and take it out to a watching world, into our relationships, into our marriages, our friendships, our workplaces, everywhere that we go. So now I'm going to pray for us. There's going to be a two-minute silence, and this may be new for some of you, but that is a time to come before God with these things. If there's any prayer you need to pray, anything you need to ask of God, if you need to be forgiven of something, um, if you just need to say, God, what are we talking about here? Or are you even real? Two minutes for you. After that, we'll take the Lord's Supper. And uh, then I'm going to be wearing different pants soon afterward. And uh, that's going to signal we're going to have a wedding. So um, I will pray and uh, two minutes of silence. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to worship you. Thank you for the beautiful truth that your love can transform us. Thank you for this opportunity to think about the the most important order of things, the way that grace transforms our hearts. I pray that if we believe it, you would drive that stake in deeper. And I pray tonight that if there's anyone who hasn't heard this before, that you would open the eyes of their hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name and lead us now as we pray.